pretty sure all those kids can sing better than I can. So <laughs> thank you very much. That was awesome. If you guys would please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. And while you are standing, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah, we in chapter 9, reading verse 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. And if you would need a pew Bible, or excuse me, if you need a Bible, there's a pew Bible located in front of you, and you can find today's reading on page 680. Isaiah chapter 9, reading verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me as I read. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppression, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come, we humbly come this morning, Lord, and, and we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we can gather. Lord, as I have just read this passage and as, as we reflect on this passage today, Lord, so many thoughts, so many truths come to our head. But Lord, I'm reminded that you are a promise keeper this morning, Lord, that you keep your promises and that Jesus came as a baby, was born in a manger. Lord, we are thankful for that. We praise you for that. Be with Pastor Bruce this morning as he brings this message. May you open our hearts and speak to each of us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Emmanuel, God with us. That is the reality that we celebrate at Christmas time. That is the longing that God's people we're looking for in the days of Isaiah. If you've gone through hard times, you know that times of crisis have a, have a way of clouding our view of life and even clouding our reality of God. We all go through times of crisis. People go through various degrees of that. Some go through more severe times of crisis than others. And when we do, darkness and distress seems to have a way of swallowing us up in despair. And that's when we need to know there's hope for a better future. That's when we need to know that there's Emmanuel, God with us. And that's exactly what God gives us here in Isaiah chapter 9. The hope of the Savior, the hope of Emmanuel. In fact, that hope is this. God promises to deliver us from the dark despair by a Savior who will rule 
forever with justice and righteousness. In the days of Isaiah, God's people were walking in the dark despair of doom and gloom. It's as if someone had turned out the lights in their lives and across their land. Two Sundays ago, we learned that Ahaz was this faithless king of Judah who who faced a grave national crisis on two fronts. Internally, a moral, spiritual rot was corrupting God's people, while externally, the threat of attack from Israel and Syria was creating this widespread panic within Ahaz's own heart and across his country. Isaiah was sent by God in this particular time of crisis to confront the king with God's promise of a sign that he can be trusted. This sign also came with a warning, though, in Isaiah 7, 9, where it says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. But instead of trusting God in his time of crisis, we saw that King Ahaz shoved God to the sideline and sought help from the Assyrians. And so it was that the sun began to set for the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah chapter 8 actually details how this happened. The shadows of growing despair and deep gloom descended upon Judah as King Ahaz and the majority of the people departed from God. As a result of their continued rebellion against God, God handed both Judah and Israel over to their sin, over to their enemies. Already God was using the Assyrian war machine to invade the the kingdom of Israel and devastate it. And Judah was now next. The end of chapter 8 tells us just how dark and dire things really are. The doom and gloom that you see here, Isaiah describes in verses 21 through 22 of Isaiah 8, where he says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And yet, in the midst of this bleak picture of doom and gloom, shines a ray of hope so brilliant and so glorious that it radically changes the perspective of God's people. This hope is none other than the promise of the Savior's coming. And what was the effect of this promise? Notice this in your notes here coming up on the screen. The promise of the Savior's coming brought light instead of darkness. It brought joy to the people instead of anguish. Isaiah 8 ends with this darkness of doom and gloom, and, but Isaiah chapter 9 opens with the hope of light instead of darkness. It opens with this joy of anguish, or instead of anguish. And so Isaiah, what he's doing for us, he's setting up a, a series of contrasts designed to address the dire situation in which God's people find themselves. God's telling them, in essence, hey, Doom and gloom in their lives and in their land will soon be overturned when the Savior comes. In fact, look what God says here in verse 1. He says, that, but there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. In verse 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And what was the result of this great light? The people respond with this great joy now in verse 3. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And behind it all, behind this joy, at the root of it all, the great cause of this ray of hope in the midst of doom and gloom is the Savior himself. Notice again the hope of the Savior in these most familiar words in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so 700 years before the angels ever sang, before the shepherds came and before the wise men gave their gifts, Isaiah right here explains just who this Savior is. Notice who he is. Number one, the Savior is miraculous in how he came. The very first part of verse 6 tells us the miraculous way in which Jesus Christ came when it says, for unto us or for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So how did he come? First of all, Jesus came in earthly humanity. For to us a child is born. This underscores the humanity of Jesus. It describes his birth as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus was miraculously born as a baby to the Virgin Mary, which is a way of describing his incarnation in which the Son of God took on human nature and became a man. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then Paul adds these words in Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And so Jesus Christ came, first of all, in earthly humanity, but we also see that he came in heavenly deity. It says, for to us a son is given. And this implies the very deity of Jesus Christ. It describes his eternal being. Ravi Zacharias said it this way, the son wasn't born. The son eternally existed. The child was born. The son was given. In other words, Jesus was not born as a son because he already was a son. He existed before his birth as a child, as the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. One pastor put it like this, Jesus Christ came in the person of deity, wrapped in the package of humanity. And so Jesus Christ the Savior is miraculous in how he came the first time. But we also see in Isaiah 9 here, that the Savior is majestic in who he is. In the Bible, the name of a person means far more than just a way to identify someone, as we do in our culture here. 
A name actually reveals the character of a person, who that person is. And Isaiah reveals four names for Jesus Christ the King, and each one unlocks an aspect of his character. These four names teach us who Jesus is and how he came to help us today. One Christmas carol rhetorically asks it this way, What child is this? who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. And if you have ever had that question in your mind, then listen to Isaiah's answer in verse 6. And his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So who is this child? Well, he's none other as the, the number one here. First of all, notice, as the Wonderful Counselor, Jesus Christ is the source of wisdom. Therefore, trust him with your life. The name Wonderful Counselor literally means a a wonder of a counselor. And it speaks of Jesus' infinite wisdom. That is the counsel of Jesus. We might say it this way. It is out of this world. It is supernatural and it is from above. Isaiah 28, 29 says, This also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. And so here is a person in in Jesus Christ whose counsel is indeed wonderful. Why? Because it's wise counsel with great understanding. It is strong counsel that is full of knowledge. And most of all, it is the counsel of God himself through his son Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.24 teaches us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And here is a counselor unlike any other the world has ever known. Counselors and psychologists, they make their living giving advice and counsel. But I'm sure we all understand their counsel and advice is very limited. Whereas Jesus' wisdom, it is unlimited because he is the source of all wisdom. Paul put it this way when speaking of Jesus in Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I love what Paul writes about Jesus in Romans 11, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Do you realize what this means? It means there really is no other counselor like Jesus. It means Jesus is the only one with sufficient answers to our problems even today. It means that Jesus understands things which are even beyond the ability of our human minds to comprehend. Jesus knows the ways of God. He understands God's plans and purposes and how they fit and weave together even into our own lives. Jesus' knowledge, his insight, his wisdom far exceeds that of any man who ever lived. Why? Because Jesus is the source of all wisdom. It's amazing what Jesus can can do in our lives when we simply trust him and follow him as our Lord and Savior. Are you confused about life? Are you experiencing problems in life, whether it be financial, marriage, 
Are you in trouble financially? Are you pulling your hair out over raising your kids? Listen, seek the counsel of Jesus. Because he can do wonders as your counselor. Isaiah 25.1 says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.11 that Jesus works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so as the wonderful counselor, Jesus is the source of wisdom. Our response ought to be to trust him. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him with your needs, your problems, whatever it is you are going through where you are unsure. Trust Him. As the mighty God, number two, notice this, Jesus empowers us to do His will. So follow Him. Rely on Him. You take the first two names of Jesus and what do you have? As the wonderful counselor, Jesus makes the plans. And as the mighty God, Jesus makes the plans work. And what are the plans of Jesus Christ? Well, according to Isaiah, it's to establish his kingdom, his government as the ultimate king. And as the mighty God, Jesus has what it takes to do just that. As the mighty God, Jesus is powerful. He is almighty to do what needs to be done. Now, just ponder this with me for a moment, because it's one thing to say you are going to do something. And it's quite another to have the ability, to have the resources to actually accomplish it. As the mighty God, there is nothing that Jesus cannot do and nothing that his power cannot accomplish. Man, let this truth kind of just run over you. Let this truth grip your heart and mind. There is nothing Jesus cannot do. In Jeremiah 32, verse 27, God asks the question, is anything too difficult for me? And of course, it's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. No, there is nothing too difficult for you. When Mary asked how it was possible for her to be the mother of God's son, since she was still a virgin, the angel Gabriel told her in Luke 1:37, for with God nothing will be impossible. And then in a song of praise to God, Mary declared in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And then Mary reflected how God came in the power to deliver his people from Egypt, how God drove their enemies from the promised land, and how God kept them year after year, sustaining them. That is our God too. And what he has done for others, he will do for us. Yes, in different ways, of course. We, we have different problems, and God has different goals for us than he had for the ancient Jewish people in Isaiah's day. But the power of the mighty God is nonetheless ours as well. Listen, as the mighty God, Jesus Christ, empowers us to do his will, just as he did Mary. So follow him. In fact, if you are a Christ follower here this morning, you have the very power within you through this Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And so, trust Him, follow Him, rely on Him. Number three, as the everlasting Father, Jesus Christ loves us endlessly. And so, run to Him. The title, Everlasting Father, it actually literally means Father of Eternity. Father of Eternity. So, how can Jesus then 
the Son of God, be called the Father of eternity. I mean, that doesn't quite make sense logically here. But think about this. The people, people who establish new companies, uh, even countries, are often referred to as what? Founding fathers. In fact, for example, we know that Jesus himself, he actually said that Satan is the father of lies. Uh, right here in our own backyard, here in the Midwest, we, uh, uh, James Naismith is the father of basketball, having invented the game. Fog Allen is the father of coaching basketball, having played for James Naismith at KU. And so fathers start and establish new things. They, they pave the way for others who will follow. And in the same way, Jesus is the father of eternity as the son of God. Jesus came to earth as a, a virgin-born child. As a man, he died for the sins of the world. Why? Because sin is our greatest problem in life. And death is the consequence of man's sin. But by rising from the dead, Jesus was victorious over death. And he actually paved the way then for all who put their trust in him to also conquer death. Not only physical death, but eternal death as well. And that's the reason Jesus can now offer eternal life to all who believe in him. And since he's the founder or establisher of eternal life, Jesus is called, rightly so, the Father of eternity. And that's why we find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Everlasting Father is also descriptive of who Jesus is to us, though. Jesus is fatherly in his care. He's compassionate to his children. He acts toward us as a father, a good father, a perfect father. Jesus is always there as our provider and our protector, never too busy, never preoccupied or disinterested in the affairs of his children. Jesus loves us forever, so run to him as your everlasting father. And then we come to the last title of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And as the Prince of Peace, Jesus reconciles us while we are still sinners. And our response should be to receive him. The prophet Isaiah confronts us with a rather revolutionary thought concerning the source of peace. He assures us here that peace is not merely a concept or even a place, but rather it is a person. Peace is found in a unique prince who is the Son of God. And because Jesus is the Son of God, he has the power and authority to bring peace to our lives and to our world. Isaiah teaches that the Prince of Peace is this long-awaited Messiah who is God in the flesh. Going back to Isaiah 7, verse 14, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course, Emmanuel, we know it means God with us. And that's why we will only find peace in the person of Jesus Christ. When it comes to personal peace, even world peace, Isaiah is saving, saying peace is a person. Peace is a glorious, majestic, all-wise, all-powerful person who is Emmanuel, God with us. Speaking of this, Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. People want this right here more than anything else. 
People long for peace. And that's what Jesus came to give us. Our most basic problem, though, is we are not at peace. We are not living in peace. Look across our world. It's anything but peaceful. Look in our own nation. And the most basic problem is we are not at peace, most of all, with God Almighty. We are at war with God because we want to be our own God. We want to determine our own lives. The good news is, though, in fact, it's phenomenal news. It's the greatest news in the war of the world, is that Jesus overcame this war, this enmity, with his death on the cross. He, in other words, he bridged the gap, making peace between us and God possible when we trust him as our Savior. The Bible tells us in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But as the Prince of Peace, Jesus not only came to provide us peace, most of all, most importantly, with God, but he also came to give us the peace of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Jesus tells us in John 14.27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so God not only wants to give us peace that confirms and settles our eternal destiny, but he also wants to give us peace that brings security and hope to our journey here on earth. This is why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Listen, he says, be anxious for nothing. But how do most people live? Anxious for everything. But Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. This is amazing. This means everyone who has peace with God can go through times of crisis and still have the peace of God in their heart. No, this peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not the the absence of crisis in our life, but it is the grace of God. It is the power of God to cope with conflict and crisis. And so even in the midst of personal darkness, Even in the midst of difficulties and despair, God's peace will be present. So Jesus Christ, the Savior, oh, he's miraculous in how he came. He is majestic in who he is. But wait, there's more. There's one more. The Savior is mighty in what he will do. Our God, as Dane said when he read our text before us, he is a promise-keeping God. In other words, what God promises, he will keep. What God says, he will do. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the very promise that King Ahaz refused to believe in. The angel Gabriel Told Mary in Luke chapter 1, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, 
and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David in response to the promise made in 2 Samuel. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so Isaiah is telling us that Jesus Christ, the Savior, is the very one who will fulfill the promises of God. What will he do? He will rule in three ways. Notice this, first of all, Christ will rule completely. The reality is man's government leads to corruption. All human governments do. The good news is there is a government, though, that will not let people down but will lead to peace and satisfaction, and that is the government or the rule of Jesus Christ. And it is this government that is spoken of in Isaiah 9, 6, when it says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. In other words, Christ's rule. It will be universal and unequal. That means no one will vote him in, no one will vote him out, as this government will rest on his shoulders. We might say it this way in light of the recent news. No one can impeach him. Second, Jesus Christ will rule eternally. Not just completely, but eternally. Isaiah tells us in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Do you catch what Isaiah is saying here? Did you hear the words? He says that no one will be able to challenge his authority or stop him. And that the rule of his government will be upheld with justice and judgment or righteousness. This promise will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the future millennial kingdom when he comes again. And then notice thirdly. He will not just rule completely and eternally, but he will rule powerfully. This government is so glorious, you might be tempted to say, how is this even going to happen? We've never seen any kind of government like this. It seems impossible. And Isaiah tells us how at the end of verse 7, when he says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Listen, man has never been able to sustain this kind of just and righteous government. Only God can accomplish this and bring all of this to pass. And Isaiah tells us that God will bring it about through the virgin-born child who is none other than Christ Jesus the Savior. Looking to God for hope. Hope. Hope when someone turned out the lights in their lives and across their land. This was the driving force for Isaiah when he wrote these words. And so it is fitting that Isaiah ends with our focus on the Savior. In the dark days of doom and gloom, God's people are urged to look for a child who will bring, bring peace and joy as the coming Savior. And of course, we know the rest of the story. We know what God did through Jesus Christ. We know that a virgin did conceive. We know that God did send his son. We know the angel said in Luke 2, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When we read Isaiah 9, 6, For to you a child is born, to you a son is given. We know now how God actually kept that promise. 
We also know what God accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross. We know how Jesus suffered a death that he did not deserve. Why? In order to bring us forgiveness and peace and reconciliation with a holy God. What's more, we know what the Bible says even about the future. We know the Bible promises that one day Jesus, this this Messiah, is going to return, not as the Savior, but as the King of Kings, to defeat the devil once and for all, and to bring all of his redeemed people into the new heaven and new earth, where he will reign and rule forever. This is the ultimate hope that we look forward to in Jesus Christ, the Savior and King, the child who was born in Bethlehem. You see, here's the the greatest news in the whole world. Here is the good news of Christmas. The hope of the Savior is not just for God's people in Isaiah's day. The hope of the Savior is God's gift to us even today. Jesus Christ is a gift from God to us, but this gift requires a response. You must receive him by faith. Do you realize that the most important part of of Isaiah 9-6, you go back to that verse, and the most important part is the first three words, where Isaiah says, for to us. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This is what Christmas is all about. God. Imagine the creator, the almighty God, giving his son as a gift to us. It's the greatest gift you can ever receive. And so God has a Christmas gift for you this Christmas. And no, it's not wrapped. It's not wrapped in bright paper and fancy ribbon, but rather it was wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's the gift of Jesus Christ, his son, and he's given to you, but you must receive him by faith. With your heads bowed, and as we close out our time together, let me encourage you to reflect on this child who was born for us. And as you do, let me ask you just a simple but powerful question, and that is, have you received the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ? If not, then today you can receive Jesus as your Savior. Today you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life with God. This Christmas, God invites you to trust Jesus for your salvation, to accept His forgiveness for your sins, and to receive eternal life. Most of you remember or know the words that Jesus said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Man, here's a simple prayer to follow if you desire to receive the gift of God's Son. It can be something like this, that you can pray in your own heart here in just a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and need your forgiveness for my sins. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and rose again. I want to turn from my sins and receive your gift of salvation in Jesus.
I want to trust him as my Savior, follow him as my Lord, and worship him as my King. Amen. Man, if that's the tugging of your heart, then would you cry out and pray that prayer? Would you repent and confess him as your Lord and Savior? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this child sent into the world for our salvation and to rule as our king. Grant us faith to believe and receive him as our Savior and King now and forevermore. Amen.